Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The leader of the statewide virtual charter school board is refusing to sign the contract to create what would be the first religious charter school. Robert Franklin voted against the authorization for the Catholic charter school, even though it passed his panel three to two. Franklin says he believes adding his signature would violate the law and his oath of office. Neva, what happens if he doesn't sign the contract? Well, I think that's a big question, compounded by the fact that this board goes away November 1st. So you have all of these controversies around not only the contract not being signed, but the questions on board members and whether or not they were duly seated and could vote on some of these things that have gone on for the last couple of months. But in the instance of Robert Franklin, the chairman of this board, he, he's been very clear. Look, he says uh, for five or six months, the attorney general's uh, office has uh, continued to say and advise us that to uh, go down this road would be violating the state constitution, state law, his oath of office. I mean, he, he is very clear, as is the, uh, um, the second member, the vice chair of the board, who basically has said, has said the same thing. So um, I, I think what we may see out of all of this, who knows when the dust settles, but we may find ourselves at the starting blocks again, going through this entire process one more time, because there is just, uh, there are too many legal questions and potential legal challenges. And I think when you have the attorney general's office already uh, very concrete in their view of what's gone on and their advice to these members of the board and the fact that the board now will go away, um, I, it, it's jump ball, it would appear to me, in terms of what's going to happen m- trying to move this whole issue forward. And, Ryan. And Eva, as you said, the board goes away November 1. This is not going to be resolved before then. Uh, the Hall Estel, the, the law firm that is advising uh, the, uh, the charter school board on this, uh, after the attorney general took the opposing position, so the, uh, the board had to go retain outside counsel. So Hall Estel is saying that maybe there's a, an opportunity for the three board members uh, that voted yes to sign the contract. Um, all of this is really just this effort to hurry this up. You know, the, the, uh, I think the, the Catholic Church uh, and the archdiocese uh, representing the church and Hall Estel representing the virtual charter school board They want to hurry this up because the whole goal here is to tee up litigation in front of the United States Supreme Court. That's that's all this is. And if they don't get this done before November 1, they're going to have to start probably from scratch. And they're going to have this whole process over again. And whether or not they can get that done uh, and and get it done this this way, that's that's a big question. So they've got this thing sitting in front of them, this opportunity to put, put it in front of the United States Supreme Court. But the issue is, is if they have the three members that voted yes, sign it. Well, one of those members, there's a question of whether that person is even eligible to be on the board. The attorney general says that their vote doesn't count because they weren't uh, put on the board in the uh, correct procedure. Uh, 
Uh, you had another one of those three members resign immediately after voting yes uh, to approve the contract. So they're gone. So they're not a member of the board. So even though they voted yes, signing a contract on behalf of the board seems in, in, you know, not feasible or, or legal. Um, so again, how does this thing happen before no- November 1? I just don't think that it does. We've reached the stalemate. And, and the board chair, Franklin, I, I totally understand where he's coming from. One, he, he has to uphold his oath to the Constitution, but he's also looking at posterity. Uh, you know, he's thinking when people look at this case, which could become a seminal case uh, in the uh, case law of religious liberty and freedom and the First Amendment in the United States, he doesn't want to be at the very beginning of the in the first chapter as being the person that signed that contract because you know 20 years from now nobody's going to know that he was the no vote they're just going to see his name on there uh and that's going to matter to him and matters to his family and and, in his history and so you know saying that he won't sign it totally understand that and i think that that's a legally defensible position for him to take state superintendent ryan walter says the department of education is starting to pay out recruitment bonuses Walters had promised the bonuses between fifteen dollars and $50,000 for elementary and special education teachers who qualified and signed a five-year contract. The agency hasn't provided details about the program except to say $7.5 million has been paid. Ryan, what do you think of this announcement? Well, you know, I have to agree with Representative Mark McBride, who's the you know, chairman of the, uh, the committee that oversees education spending in the state House of uh, Representatives. Uh, he just asked the question. He said, uh, you know, he just wants to know where the money came from and who got it. That, and he said that seems to be an easy question to ask, but nobody's giving them the answers. Uh, and in fact, the answers that individuals and organizations that are getting from the State Department of Education uh, vary widely. Uh, there's the, the list that was given to, uh, I think, um, uh, Mark, uh, to Chairman McBride that said that, you know, that, there were, that these bonuses went out and that, that there is a list of recipients and that that would be forthcoming. The Oklahoman uh, and, and my good friend Scott Carter writing this story, they put in an open records request asking for those records, and the Education Department told them that no records exist. So on one hand, they're, say, they're telling the, the media that no records exist. On the other hand, they're telling a legislator that the records exist, but they're forthcoming. So nobody knows what's going on here. Uh, and all of this is unsurprising. You know, the, the fact that you've got uh, a state superintendent who is as incompetent as he is self-absorbed uh, doing something to promote himself, to try to make himself look good by giving out what he says are millions of dollars to teachers in a, in a way to recruit teachers or retain teachers or uh, bring teachers back to the classroom in Oklahoma, but with no information about it. And, and there's, there's no receipts. So it, it's essentially him saying, you know, teachers are getting these things, but there's no evidence of any teacher getting them. Uh, and I think if this were any other day in Oklahoma politics, we would be like, oh my gosh, this is nuts. But this is just a, another chapter in the, the Ryan Walters saga that, you know, seems to have no end uh, in sight. Neva. It, it, it's a situation where you have this bonus program that is announced by the superintendent back in April, uh, says that these bonuses will range from 15000 to 50000 They talk about that there will be uh, a, a set of qualifications to be met and that they have to sign a five-year contract. Um, out of this, um, you're right. Time passes, nothing seems to be moving, no, no uh, responses to questions that are being asked by lawmakers and others. Then we get this information that says $7.5 million of this $16 million uh, has been paid out. But as you say, Ryan, the question is who and where and what districts and what are the, uh, what are the particulars. And I think this is something you're not talking, you're talking about 
uh, public dollars. You're talking about accountability, and I think that uh, this process will go on for some time. I mean, when you talk about teachers from, they, the, I think the release was 200 school districts that uh, um, would be receiving signing bonuses. Obviously, people want to know who those, uh, who, those, who those folks are and how this breaks out in districts across the, the state of Oklahoma. I think the fact that uh, in this instance where they were focusing, the, pro- the program was targeted for out-of-state teachers, it was targeted for first-time teachers, and also teachers returning to the, to the classroom. So there, there were very defined parameters for this, and clearly there's a need to engage and try to, uh, try to recruit and try to uh, retain teachers, as we've talked about over and over and over. So I think there is a natural focus. I mean, to have this Oklahoma teacher signing bonus program and not be able to really lay it out in a way that gives comfort to everyone, uh, not only reading about it, but those engaged in it, those who perhaps applied for it and didn't get it, and for whatever reasons, I think these are the lingering questions that lawmakers are going to continue to come back around, whether it's Representative McBride, Representative Baker, many of these other uh, chairs of the of the education committees in the House, as well as um, those in the, the Senate. This is a serious business, and I think you're I think you're right. The fact that we continue to have to uh, talk almost weekly now of instances of things going on where there are more questions than answers. All that all that has to happen is let's answer the questions, and then the ability to move forward will come after that. As, as the great American political philosopher Wendy said, "Where's the beef?" <laughs> and if you if you're Ryan Walters and you really are putting this money out there, and you've got teachers that you've identified as the recipients of these grants you would have one of those, at least one of those teachers in your press release. You would put one of those teachers out in front of a camera uh, to give a statement about how important it was for them to get that so that they could come back into teaching or why they didn't leave the state or why they came back to Oklahoma. The fact that there is not a single teacher that either the media has been able to identify, that legislators have been able to identify, or even the State Department has identified themselves, that's really telling. Well, the other thing is uh, there was a superintendent, I believe it was the cash superintendent, that said that he had three three teachers in his district that had qualified for the bonus. And yet, to his knowledge, the district had not received any funds allocated for these bonuses at that point in time. And I think that was... Uh, um, sometime or sometime late summer when the, when this was all beginning to kind of unfold, maybe in early August. So again, you've got superintendents with questions, you've got teachers with questions, you've certainly got the public with an ongoing uh, question of what's going on and just give us more information. Another member of the State Board of Education has resigned. Suzanne Reynolds leaving the board marks the second person to leave the panel since Superintendent Walters took the chairmanship position in January. Trent Smith left in May after two years on the board and his seat has yet to be filled. Reynolds leaves after getting the position from Governor Stitt in January. Neva, what does this mean for the education board? Well, again, I think any board, any state board needs to have every seat at the table filled. Uh, and in many instances, there are, there are prescribed qualifications, there are prescribed districts of whatever it may be, but the composition of those boards, it is incredibly important to make certain that you have representation across the board. So two of the six, big number. I think there's there will be a lot of pressure to fill those quickly. 
Um, in this instance, where we had a board member leaving, uh, it's already been announced that uh, from the governor's office that he will appoint her uh, to the Board of Regents for the University of Science and Arts of Oklahoma, the Liberal Arts College in Oklahoma. So she will continue to uh, have an opportunity for public service in, in the education arena at, at the higher ed level. But I think for the governor, it continues to be an instance where it is incredibly important for him to make sure that he gets these positions filled and filled quickly so that uh, that there is some ability to gain some continuity on the board as they move forward with what are very critical issues before them. And, right. and if, you're, yeah. if you're shuffling deck chairs on the, the Titanic of Oklahoma education policy, moving somebody from the State Department of Education to the Board of Regents of USAO to me seems a, uh, a move that is going to make it harder for the governor's office because getting somebody to serve as a regent for USAO, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll put my hand up. That sounds like a, a, a great appointment and, and a real opportunity to uh, have influence on higher education policy in the state of Oklahoma, and in particular for USAO, which is uh, really one of the most important higher education institutions in, in the state of Oklahoma. And I have just a, a ton of respect for the role that they play there uh, in, the, in the state's higher education program. So getting somebody to fill that job, easy. Getting someone to step into the State Department of Education uh, and, and ser serve on that board uh, where you have just this, this brand of nihilism and, and not the good kind of nihilism, just this, this brand of nihilism, almost like you see in Washington, D.C. right now by this, these you know, fringe group of Republicans that are just more interested in chaos and, and sowing more chaos and then, and then sitting back and saying, hey, look, there's chaos. We told you so. And that's what you have from Ryan Walters. That's at the head of the board. It's also interesting because we've seen in, in the last week or so, Governor Stitt come out publicly against some of the things that Ryan Walters has said about education funding. That's the first time really that we've seen the governor on a different page than the, the state superintendent. Now, does that influence the decision of who he selects to go on that board? Is he gonna put somebody on that board that is, is possibly going to be a check from the governor's office? Uh, and then who is that individual? Who wants to go do that and take that public service on because you're going to be caught between a governor who, if you go against the governor, uh, he's probably going to fire you. And then you're going to be in the, in the trenches with Ryan Walters. And that doesn't sound like fun for anybody. And if it's been five months since uh, Trent Smith left, why, why has that not been filled? Well, I think, it, I think that's a good question. It, are they having difficulty finding individuals that really want to kind of, as, as Ryan, as you say, kind of jump into the fire? I mean, this is a highly controversial board right now, given what has gone on, given the fact that there has been so much swirling around, so much uh, public sentiment kind of on all sides. Uh, and I think, that, uh, I think that they are going to have to be very deliberative on selections that fit the bill of what they want to see going forward. And I think you're right, Ryan. Is it someone, uh, is it a rubber stamp or is it someone who is going to be independent thinking and will look at every issue, make their decision, and people will allow them to make those decisions based upon their their own convictions or conscience or information before them at the time. So um, I think it begins to give pause to a lot of folks about the fact that uh, these boards are vital to the overall makeup and working of government. And, and I think that many times we've just been, we kind of gloss over that and think that they're just, uh, they're a nice resume builder for someone who just wants to uh, 
uh, come to a meeting once a month or once a quarter. It's much more serious than that, and I think people are now keying in on that more than ever. House Speaker Charles McCall is replacing his appointees on the board for the state's pension system. While this isn't unusual, the move follows a vote by the panel in August to use an exemption from a new state law forbidding the state from doing business with financial firms perceived to be hostile to the oil and gas industry. The exemption means the board won't have to divest $6 billion in pension assets managed by a firm currently on a list of restricted companies put out by Treasurer Todd Russ. Ryan, what do you think about this decision by the speaker? Well, first of all, the coverage of this issue by Oklahoma Watch has been is stellar. Uh, this is this is not the kind of issue that uh, ends up often on the front pages of, of mainstream newspapers or any. But you've got Oklahoma Watch really digging on the, digging in on this. Paul Money is doing great reporting, and I just want to just compliment him and Oklahoma Watch and any other news outlet that, that does this because it's so important. When they talk about the House bill or or the Senate bill. And you, they put a link in there, and you can click on it, and it immediately takes you to the the legislative website, and you can read the bill. That's so important as a, as a consumer of media. So thanks for doing that. Now back to the issue. Uh, yeah, this is when you look at that law, when you click on that link, and you look at this law, it is really incredible how much discretion the legislature gave to the state treasurer, who at this time and uh, happens to be Todd Russ. This a former lawmaker, former himself. lawmaker himself, uh, and so Treasurer Russ, or or any future treasurer, if, as long as this law is in effect, has wide discretion to say who is and who isn't a company that is boycott that is boycotting oil and gas interest, and therefore deserves to be on this list and prohibited from doing business with the state of Oklahoma. Uh, the the law is so arbitrary and and, and casts such a wide net. That, you know, it basically says, I mean, I think it even says he can just use his judgment, his good judgment of, of who belongs on the list and who doesn't belong on the list. Um, and so even leaving, even setting aside that the policy of whether that's good policy for Oklahoma, just the way that it has to be executed seems, you know, very arbitrary and, and cumbersome uh, and, and subject to, you know, potential abuse. And so you've got a state entity that said, well, listen, you know, if we have to comply with this law, uh, it's going to cost the state millions of dollars. And so we're going to seek this exemption, which is allowed under the law. And so they, they did that, and they had the vote. The only no vote was the treasurer, uh, Todd Russ. And now the, some of the board members that, that voted that way for following the law that, again, allowed for this exemption are now seemingly being punished uh, and removed from the board from, from doing so. I, I think that, um, you know, they'll, that's, you know that, that is behind us at this point. Uh, I do think that moving into this current legislative session, we will see legislation that amends this somewhat. I hope that they clear up uh, some of these definitions so that they're more, uh, so that there's more exacting definitions uh, that that have to be in place here. But also, you know, whenever you start to think about lo- local governments and municipalities and counties, there's a lot of confusion there as to how this law applies to them and and what they need to do to be compliant with this law. Neva, well, I, first of all, you're right. I mean, the the House bill. Uh, was passed in 2022, became law, and I think at the time no one was paying much attention. And so you you have a new treasurer come in, and the treasurer does what the law prescribes. Uh, and while there is no question, I think, in this ongoing conversation that there will be a need, as you say, Ryan, for lawmakers to take a look and make some tweak, do some tweaking and make provisions to deal with some of these issues that have been raised by municipalities and others. And in the instance of the municipalities, it appears to be only one or two. So it's not some groundswell of municipalities across the state of Oklahoma, just all up in the air and having this great amount of confusion. 
And you really, when you look at the instance of the two board members in question, they were already uh, uh, serving after expired terms. I mean, they were continuing on to serve in an interim basis this year. So for the speaker to make those changes was not not that unusual. It only kind of rose to um, some some real, uh, I think, look because of the fact that it was taking place with this backdrop. But the bigger question, I think, that that is lost sometimes in this conversation, and certainly in this this conversation about the uh, OPERS or the Oklahoma Public Employees Retirement System and, and what they did with their vote in August, is the fact that you're talking about primarily one entity, BlackRock. Um, BlackRock is the largest um, uh, alter, alternative uh, asset manager in the world, a trillion dollars, mm-hmm. a trillion dollars. They manage more assets than anyone around the globe. And yes, they have, uh, they have a huge uh, holding here in the state of Oklahoma with OPERS and some of the other, uh, some of the other boards, the uh, uh, firefighters, pub- public employees, all of these different groups. So they weigh in heavy and they come in strong because they they're not used to a state treasurer in Oklahoma or many other states who are doing the same thing and with with respect to legislation trying to address some of the concerns that are coming out of what is called ESG or the environmental, social, and governance policies that these large corporate entities around the world are uh, adhering to now. And the bottom line for the state of Oklahoma is their anti oil and gas. They're anti-energy in many instances. And in their own governing documents, corporate governing documents will spell this out. So the fact that they are they are designed and focused on eliminating emissions and, and uh, a, a possible uh, fuel imprint and all of the other things that they outline, it, it does cause concern. I think lawmakers two years ago or, or a year ago started to uh, take a look at this and say, we have to be proactive and we have to address this in some fashion. Now, as the treasurer came in, based on reports that have been published, uh, they devised questionnaires, they devised interviews, they devised a number of things to, um, to allow them to develop a process to be able to address every entity that that uh, has holdings or has involvement and, and does business in the state of Oklahoma, not just BlackRock. BlackRock always comes to the forefront again because of its size and being uh, being the largest anywhere in the in the world. But I think I think that it's going to be incumbent upon lawmakers to take a very thoughtful look at this and not just throw something out because there's been controversy or questions surrounding it. But again, get the stakeholders at the table and look at what's going on, not only with respect to Oklahoma, but look at what's going on across the country and then make some, make some adjustments in this bill or come up with additional legislation that will work to the benefit of everyone involved. And we're not talking about you know, really you know, small entities here that the state is, is crossways, crossways with with this law. I mean, you, you talked about uh, BlackRock, but you're talking J.P. Morgan Chase. Bank of America, you know, the city of Stillwater put a project on hold because Bank of America was involved in it. And they thought, well, you know, Bank of America, can they be part of the the financing of this project? So they put this project on hold. So that's part of that confusion that I was talking about. Another thing that this law does that is is interesting is that it allows the state treasurer, uh, you know, very explicitly in in the law to uh, contract with third party consultants uh, to help execute the state treasurer's obligations under the law. 
and you know I don't we don't know exactly yet, but there's a, a group called uh, State Financial Officers uh, Foundation, which is a Kansas-based nonprofit. Uh, this was in Oklahoma Watch's reporting that you know, has been advising the state treasurer's office on this and other uh, uh, financial officials in the state uh, on how to comply with this law. Well, this is a, a very this group is is decidedly uh, you know pro oil and gas uh, industry and they're they're anti you know clean energy and all of that. So um, I think that it, it is interesting to see a provision in the law that allows. Uh, potential third-party nonprofit advocacy organizations uh, to play such a direct role uh, in government governance and implementation of, of a law. But it's no different than what happens at, in the legislative process, where you have legislative outside bodies uh, that uh, that are uh, really their whole focus is to come up with model legislation that they go to lawmakers and legislatures all across the country. They may tilt to the left, they may tilt to the right, but they 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 go in, they provide resources, research, data, and they help lawmakers interested in a particular subject matter or topic to devise a bill or structure a conversation to move forward on something that seems to be timely or in, interesting. And so to suggest that uh, the treasurer kind of is out here in a unique place that it's only for the state treasurer's office in Oklahoma versus the legislature or the governor's office or the corporation commission or the labor commission or anywhere else, I think is probably uh, being too narrow in the conversation. Well, and I, I agree that the legislature does that all the time. Um, I, I think that the the thing that would be unique here is whether or not by this law the treasurer's office is compensating this organization uh, for these services, for these uh, quote-unquote consulting services. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you know, Paul Money's uh, will tell us next week. Well, you know, it's interesting in Paul Money's, uh, one of his articles, I mean, he pointed out, I guess in a conversation or at least statements made by the by the treasurer, Todd Russ, that he, he indicated, look, we understand from the treasurer's office perspective that many of the many of these relationships go go over decades. Uh, I think in one instance with one of the pension boards, they'd had the same uh, the same entity for 40 years. So there, he acknowledges that it is a conversation that is multifaceted. I think that we've seen even in this controversy of who was on quote the list initially that several of those entities, those large uh, um, uh, entities, actually, in, in whatever the process was, were able to come off the list. So there was a process so that it was not one-dimensional or here it is, there's no room to make any movement one way or the other. And I think the complexity of all of this is, is the fascinating part for uh, not only uh, Oklahoma Watch as they've delved into it and others, but for folks that that have a vested interest let's let's face it i mean people that have their uh that have their pensions have their pensions um uh, with the opers or anything else they pay attention because they see this as something that directly affects their uh their future their livelihood and and their retirement as well the state supreme court says it won't hear a challenge to tribal compacts by lawmakers without the governor's blessing justices didn't give a reason for their six to three decision and there's still a challenge from the state administration so neva what does this mean for the compacts well i i don't know that it at this point means much of anything other than that we're going to continue to see uh oral arguments on the case that is still before the uh, state supreme court the one where the governor sued uh, the speaker and the pro tem on the grounds that uh, 
It was only the governor, in his estimation, that had the uh, authority to negotiate compacts. Those oral arguments are set for December 7th. So I think that, I think in this instance, what the court decided is that with no explanation, they didn't issue an opinion or, or say anything, but just move forward and left this one, uh, kind of left this one on the desk unattended. And but I, I think the bigger issues that we continue to see challenged uh, in this whole process of who and how and what tribal compacting is going to look like in the future, I think those issues will ultimately have to be resolved by the state Supreme Court. Right. And we don't know exactly why they decided to decline to accept jurisdiction in this case. We can speculate. Uh, and I, I think you know part of that is if you look at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs application for that, that's the group that sued, the nonprofit group that, that sued uh, and, and tried to say that this law was unconstitutional. It was a revenue raising bill, uh, that it was passed without the procedures necessary for a revenue raising bill and therefore was unenforceable. Um, that's the tobacco compact law that was passed during the legislative special session. Uh, you know, if you look at that application, they, they try to invoke this thing called, you know, it's, it's basically public interest doctrine, uh, taxpayer standing, you know, that's, it goes by a lot of different names. Uh, and there's a really great article by uh, Melanie Rugani that was in the Oklahoma Bar Journal. It's, it's called Of Public Right, uh, where she takes a, a modern look at this doctrine. Oklahoma courts, interestingly, are courts that have a much larger jurisdiction. The Oklahoma State Supreme Court has a much larger jurisdiction than, say, Article Three federal courts, everything mm -hmm. from district uh, to the appellate circuits to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and so the state Supreme Court can hear a lot of cases uh, and have a wide discretion in, in how they can select those cases uh, without having to have you know, some case or controversy that has a very defined, uh, which is a very defined term in, in federal jurisprudential law. So if uh, they looked at this, I, I think that the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs was saying this is a law of public interest. It affects a lot of Oklahomans. You know, the, the court, you know, probably exercised its discretion there and said, well, you didn't seem to demonstrate how either you or any of your members are going to be directly affected there or how you're going to have any injury, uh, in fact, in this uh, either direct or indirect. So I think that that's one thing. The other thing is that a lot of these other issues are still rolled up in Stitt v. Treat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's coming along. And, uh, you know, what an interesting oral argument that's going to be on December 7th. I do not envy the governor's outside counsel and they're and trying to defend these positions that the that the uh, that the legislature cannot uh, exercise its legislative authority to uh, to change the law, uh, not not the Constitution, but to change the law, statutory law. Uh, that's a very difficult position for them to defend. And you've got not only you're not only against um, uh, the state attorney general, uh, which is uh, strange enough. You've got the, the the legislature. It's it's basically the governor versus everybody. You know, Stitt v. Everybody should be the style of the case actually. And that's a really difficult position for them to defend. And you know, like the like the court in Oklahoma, the legislature has broad legislative authority. I mean, their, their constitutional grant of authority is you can basically do whatever you want uh, on any subject you want, so long as it doesn't violate this constitution being the state constitution or the federal constitution. And it That's, passes by a majority. And, and, and it passes by a majority. And if the governor vetoes it, the legislature still has the prerogative to come back and override that veto with a two-thirds vote in both houses or both chambers. And so uh, the legislature has a broad grant of authority here. The court had a broad grant of authority, exercised their jurisdiction. They probably thought, we want to talk about these issues once and one time only. There are a handful of reasons that we can just decline here, but we're not even going to say them out loud. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. 
Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Ginny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there. 